If we please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 957. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. And last week we had finished up chapter 9, where we have this warning not to be disqualified. And this warning was given to Christians. It's not a warning implying that they could lose their salvation. As we saw, true believers are eternally secure in Christ. But it was a warning not to be disqualified for service in the kingdom, not to be disqualified from usefulness, useful service to God, and not to forfeit our rewards, rewards that always accompany faithfulness, faithful service to the Lord and bringing him glory. And disqualification comes when a Christian neglects the small things, when we are undisciplined, when we are lazy, when we neglect the things of God, when we neglect the means of grace, when we get distracted by the things of this world. This is what puts us in danger of being disqualified. And chapter 10 gets even more serious. In this chapter, Paul looks to the example of the Old Testament Israel when they left slavery in Egypt and were in the wilderness. And he looks at their failures and he looks at the judgments that they faced because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief, And he uses this as a warning for the Corinthians. And it's a warning to us as well. And the overall message of this passage, the overall message of this sermon is don't presume upon cultural Christianity. Don't presume upon the fact that one may outwardly participate in the things of God with the people of God. Don't assume that this participation means that you know God, means that you are known by him. Don't confuse association with conversion. Don't confuse a mere superficial involvement with the visible church as a sign of true regeneration, of true faith, of actually becoming a new creation in Christ. That's the message of the service. That's the message of this sermon. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolatrous, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Let's pray. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you will speak through me. Give me the power. Give me your truth. Give me your conviction. And Father, each one of us 
Each one of us, naturally, our hearts are dull. And I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to prick in our hearts, to open them, that we will hear from you, that we will have an encounter with you. We will see the Lord Jesus Christ. And each one of us will be changed. Each one of us will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, we live here in the Bible Belt. And living in the Bible Belt, there are good things and there are bad things. And the good thing is that overall we enjoy a Christian culture. The church is overall respected. We don't see the open hostility against the church as we see in other places in the world. We're not in danger. We don't have to worry that we'll get arrested, that the police will come here and haul us away. We don't have to worship in secret. We don't know, need to worry about losing our jobs or, or being ridiculed for our faith. For the most part, there is a, a general biblical morality here in the Bible Belt. This is, is the benefit that we have of living here in the Bible Belt. But the bad part, the bad part about living in the Bible Belt is that every single person who lives in the Bible Belt thinks they are a Christian. I live in the Bible, I must be a Christian. And you see, when there is a social benefit to church attendance, the church tend to be filled with the unconverted. See, they're not seeking God. What they're seeking is the, the social benefits that come as identifying as a Christian. And I would not be surprised that the actual number of true regenerated believers is no fewer in places in the country where it's hostile to Christianity than it is right here in the Bible Belt. And because of this presumption of so many cultural Christians, what we're looking at in today's passage is particularly relevant here to the Bible Belt church. And just like the, the warning to the Corinthians, we too need to hear this warning that we must not presume upon the fact that we live in the Bible Belt, that we attend church, that we were baptized, that we participate in the Lord's Supper. This does not mean that we are all regenerate. This does not mean that we are all new creations in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul addresses this presumption head on. And this is really the outline of the sermon. This is where we're going to go today. And he does this by showing, the first thing he shows is the continuity of the people of God, the continuity of God's people. The second thing, we see a warning, a warning for all of God's people. And the third thing we see is a hope, the hope for all of God's people. So the continuity of God's people, the warning of God, to God's people, and the hope for God's people. This is our outline. So let's, let's jump in. Point one, the continuity of God's people. Take a look at the first four verses here. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And in these first four verses, what Paul is doing is he, is he equates the, the wandering Israelites in the desert with the church. Now for those of us who go to Northgate and, and, and are familiar with the Reformed tradition, this kind of seems, makes sense, because we see a continuity of all of God's people, all the way back from, from, from Abel and Seth, through Noah, and through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, and the patriarchs and the people of Israel and the kings. We see this continuity. We see that we as the church are the spiritual descendants of the Old Testament patriarchs, of the people of Israel. And while this is natural for us, this would have been completely revolutionary to the Corinthians. Remember, the Corinthians were Greek. That means they were Gentiles. They're not Jewish. 
But look at how Paul relates these Gentile Corinthian Christians to the Israelites in the Exodus. In verse 1, Paul says that our fathers, our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And Paul is saying that the Israelites, God's covenant people, were actually the fathers, the spiritual fathers of the Gentile Christians. And the reference to the cloud, this is the the pillar of cloud and the the pillar of fire that the Israelites were led through the desert to the promised land by. And the reference to the sea, this is the Red Sea that split open and they passed through on dry land to come out of the exodus from Egypt. And Christians are the spiritual descendants of God's Old Testament people. In verse uh, verse 2, Paul uses sacramental language. He talks about baptism making this further link between the Israelites and the Christian church. He says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they were baptized into Moses. What this means is that Moses was their human deliverer. And Moses' authority was confirmed by God's holy presence that we saw in the cloud and the miraculous deliverance of of the people by this parting of the Red Sea. And you can see the analogy here with the Christian baptism. We as Christians are baptized not into Moses, but we are baptized into Christ, who is our deliverer, who is the true deliverer. See, Moses was a type of Christ. Moses pointed forward toward Christ. And just as Moses' authority was confirmed by God's presence in the, in the cloud and in the miraculous signs, so too Jesus' authority as our deliverer was confirmed by the anointing with the Holy Spirit at his baptism and by the miraculous signs that Jesus performed. And as verse 2 is an allusion to baptism, verse 3 here is an allusion to the Lord's Supper. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, And they all drank the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And the spiritual food that the Israelites in the wilderness ate was the manna. Remember, they're in the desert. There's no food. There's There's no plants that they can grab. There's no animals to kill. They have nothing to eat. So God supernaturally provided for them by providing this manna from heaven. Every day, they got just enough that they needed. And again, the water, they didn't have water. There was no, they were in a desert. The water was supernaturally provided for them from the rock. And every day when the Israelites ate the manna and drank this water, they were given a reminder of God's merciful sustenance and supernatural preservation for them. And what Paul is doing is he's connecting this with the Christian sacrament of the Lord's Supper which is for us a regular reminder of God's spiritual sustenance, his spiritual preservation for us. And it is a means of grace. And what a means of grace is, is that the Lord's Supper is is a way, it's not the only way, but it is an important way in which we are actually giving spiritual sustenance, spiritual preservation. There is actual grace imparted to us through the Lord's Supper. And although these sacraments look different for the Israelites in the desert and in the New Testament church, the source of these sacraments was the same. The ultimate foundation for these sacraments was the same. And the source is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though the Israelites would not have known who Christ was, exactly what that meant, Paul explicitly makes this connection in the the second part of verse 4. He says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. See, Paul, in these first four verses, he's establishing this continuity of God's people. And the particular point that he's making here is that the Israelites in the wilderness, they received all these blessings. They participated in these means of grace. Just as as Christians in the visible church, we all receive these blessings. We participate 
in, in the Christian means of grace. We have, we have the word preached to us. We have prayer. We have the sacraments. This is good. This is a great thing. But then Paul throws them a curveball, as we see in verse 5, where he says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And Paul is saying here that despite all the blessings that these Israelites enjoyed, despite the manna, despite the, the water, despite the parting of the Red Sea, despite the miracles that they saw every day and participating in these means of grace, with most of them, notice he says most of them, not some of them, not a few of them, but with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown, literally laid low in the wilderness. So why, why was God not pleased with them? Well, Hebrews 11:6 tells us what is absolutely essential for God to be pleased with us. In Hebrews 11:6 it says, "And without faith it is impossible to please him. It is impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him." And God was not pleased with these Israelites in the desert because they did not have faith. In other words, they were not believers. They were not converted. And this brings us to our second point. This is the warning for all of God's people. And Paul tells us specifically in verse 6 that the failures of the Israelites in the wilderness and the resulting divine judgment were recorded as an example. And as an example for us, as an example for the church. He says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. See, Scripture records real events that happened to real people in a real time and space. But not everything that happened to all of God's people is recorded. But there is a selection, and there is a purpose to the selection. There's a purpose to the events that are recorded. And one of those purposes, not the only purpose, but one of those purposes is to provide an example for us. And in these verses that follow, Paul gives an example of the sins committed by the Israelites in the wilderness and these sins resulted in God's judgment against them. And this judgment here is twofold. The sins that are mentioned, idolatry, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, grumbling, these sins can be committed by believers as well as unbelievers. And when they're committed by believers, the result is not a loss of salvation, as we discussed last week, but the result is a disqualification. Disqualification of usefulness of service, disqualification of reward, and disqualification of assurance. See, this type of, of deliberate and unrepentant sin, what it does is it robs us of our assurance of salvation. Just like we said in our confession of faith from the Westminster Confession. In other words, we must not be complacent in the face of willful sin, thinking, well, I'm a believer. You know, I can't lose my salvation. That's, a, that's what, that's what we, they say every week. We, we're, we're once saved, always saved. I'm okay. Rather, rather, this type of sin should shake us to the core and make us question, am I really a believer? Am I really in Christ? Have I really had a saving encounter with the Lord? See, my friends, if there is no fruit of salvation, there can be no assurance of salvation, regardless of whatever profession of faith one may have made, regardless of walking down an aisle, raising a hand, or even being baptized, or even receiving the Lord's Supper. And while this section could apply to believers, I see the main thrust relating to cultural Christians, to those who go through the motions but have no saving faith, have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
And let's look at these sins one at a time. In verse 7, the sin highlighted here is idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And what Paul here is, is referencing is really the whole main question of these three chapters. Remember we, chapters 8, 9, and 10? Do you remember what the first question that came up? It was a couple of weeks ago. But the question was about food sacrificed to idols. Was it okay to eat these food sacrificed to idols? And remember, they were the knowledgeable ones, the ones who had puffed up Christians. They claimed that it was no problem. You could eat this food sacrificed to idols. But we saw that the real reason they wanted to eat this food is because it was convenient for them. Not eating this food would have made them stand out. It would have been very inconvenient if they didn't participate. So he said, oh, it's, it's nothing. New. We know that there's, there's only one God. We know that there's, there's no real presence of, of these false gods, so it's okay for us to eat them. And that was their motivation. They wanted to eat them. And in chapter 8, Paul doesn't come right out and say it's sinful, even though the church had already made that determination at the Jerusalem Council as recorded in Acts 15. And in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul sidesteps the issue and looks at a higher principle, a principle of loving the weaker brother. And then Paul expands on this principle in chapter 9 by where he gives up his legitimate rights for the sake of the gospel, where he becomes all things to all people, that some might be saved. But here in chapter 10, and we're going to look at this in more detail in future sermons, Paul shows that knowingly eating this food that was sacrificed to an idol, in fact, is participating in idolatry. So what Paul says in, in, in verse 7 is actually a quote of Exodus 32, 6, where he says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And this is the incident. This is an infamous incident in the life of God's people. This is the golden calf incident that you may remember. So Moses was up on the mountaintop getting the Ten Commandments, and the people, he was delayed coming back, and the people got worried. So they went to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said, make for us gods that we can see, that we can worship, because we, we don't believe in this God. And when Moses comes down, he sees the people worshiping this golden calf. This is the, the height of their idolatry. And this is exactly what the puffed-up Christians are doing when they flaunt their knowledge and their freedom at the expense of the weaker brother for the purpose of, of fitting in with the pagan culture. They have become idolaters. They have made an idol out of their freedom and out of their so-called knowledge. But most of all, they have made an idol out of their comfort, out of their wanting to fit in and be like the pagan world. And my friends, is not the idol of comfort, is not the idol of wanting to fit in with the unbelieving culture, is not one of the most insidious sins that we commit in the 21st century American church? Right? The entire prosperity bent that was seen in cultural Christianity testifies to this. See, millions come to Christ not as repentant sinners seeking reconciliation with the holy God, not seeking salvation from hell. No, rather they come thinking that they're basically good, basically decent chaps. And we're told that God wants us to have our best life now. And they're looking for God to give them just that, that little bit extra, that, that little thing that they're missing. If they had, then they could be a have, have a happy and successful life. My friends, that was me. That was the reason I first started looking into it, coming to Christ. And if, if you look at most of the sermon series offered in Christian churches, some of them will go through a verse-by-verse verse, like we do, but most of them are, are topical. And, and, and they're really some kind of self-help. You know, winning over worry, winning over stress, biblical parenting, biblical financial management. All of this draws more of a crowd. It'll solve a problem, a felt need that you have, rather than 1 Corinthians, what the Bible says. 
And I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't offer instruction. Like it certainly does. But this type of marketing of God's word towards the, the felt needs, really what it does is it fosters this Christian cultural Christian coming really only for the practical, only for the worldly benefits and not for Christ himself. And this furthers the presumption that because they like God's gifts, they want to have their best life now, they think they actually belong to God. They think they actually love God. The next sin Paul addresses here is sexual immorality. We see this in verse 8. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on a single day. Wow. And this verse is a reference to Numbers 25. And here, some of the Israelite men were indulging in sexual immorality with prostitutes, with temple prostitutes. And some of you may know this was, this was actually part of the religion, the fertility worship of, of the fertility god Baal. And basically he said that the way you worship is go and see prostitutes and have sex with prostitutes. That was their worship. As a result of this wicked immorality, God sent the plague and it killed over 20,000 of them. Just get that over your mind. 20,000 were killed because of this. And we've discussed the topic of sexual immorality multiple times in our study of 1 Corinthians. But the bottom line is the Bible defines sexual immorality as any sexual activity outside the bond of covenant marriage between one man and one woman, period. That's it. That means premarital sex, extramarital sex, prostitution, homosexuality, pornography, remarriage after divorce, assuming you don't have biblical grounds, which is adultery and desertion. All of these are prohibited for the Christian. All of these are sinful. And you can just understand what the, what the culture would think, right? What would people think if they heard what I said? They think I'm out of my mind, right, when I just said that. See, this understanding of sexuality, it is rejected by many, not just, not just pagans. It is rejected by many who claim to be Christians, I remember watching two people, they were, they were uh, um, entertainers, and they were both saying they were, they were Christians. And they were saying, no, you could you're basically premarital sex. If that's what's right for you, homosexuality, if that's right for you, that's okay. God has nothing to say with that. And they're claiming to be Christians, professing Christians. My friends, what the Bible calls evil, these professing Christians are calling good. And what the Bible calls good, actually presenting what the Word says, they call evil. You see, this is... This is what we see, these Christians are either seriously deceived or, more likely, they are not Christian at all. The next sin Paul lists is putting Christ to the test. We see this in verse 9, which is, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And this here is a reference to Numbers 21, verses 4 to 6. I'm just going to read this for you. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Just like the text we heard earlier. For there is no food and no water. God provided food and water. And we loathe this worthless food. The food that God provided, they loathe. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of, many of the people of Israel died. So how do these people put Christ to the test? Well, what they did is they spoke out against God. They spoke out against God's servant, Moses. They didn't like God's plan as revealed to Moses. They wanted to do their thing, things their own way, as they wanted them. And as such, they went after God's servant. They basically tried to intimidate Moses to do what they wanted, pressure him to do what they wanted. And this is the way they put God to the test. It's not putting them to the test to understand what he said. That's not what it's talking about. Not even putting them to the test in order to increase their faith. No, these things are not sinful. These things are done in faith. 
But what they did to put Christ to the test is that they challenged him. They challenged his authority. They challenged the authority of his word. They challenged the authority of his anointed servant. And how is this done today? Well, we do this today when we demand our own autonomy. When we see ourselves as a law of ourselves. We see ourselves as the final authority. We do this when we refuse to submit to God's word. Refuse to submit to his clear commands. When we refuse to submit to his divinely ordained authority that God has placed in our lives, in the family, in the church, in the civil sphere. And we do this when we put God to the test. And we will receive a severe judgment for this. And closely related to putting God to the test, we see in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And this grumbling is a reference to our Old Testament reading that Nathan read for us from Numbers 13 and 14 about the report of the spies and the grumbling of the people demanding to go back to Egypt, not wanting to go into the promised land. And this example really shows the essence of all the sins that we have looked at so far. And the essence of all these sins is unbelief. They didn't believe. The Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt because they did not believe that God actually could give them victory over the Canaanites. They looked too impressive. They didn't believe God can do it. God wouldn't give them the promised land. They put Christ to the test because they didn't believe his word. They didn't believe that he spoke through his servant Moses. They committed sexual immorality because they did not believe that God's command about sexuality was actually what was in their best interest. Rather, they followed their own sinful lusts. They were idolatrous because they did not think God was real. They wanted to worship something that they could see with their eyes. They did not have faith. As we're told in Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And these Israelites faced these judgments because even though they participated in the blessings and the sacraments with the faithful Israelites, they did not personally believe. And it's this lack of faith that stands as a warning to the Corinthians. This is a warning for each one of us. See, at the end of the day, Christi- cultural Christianity cannot cut it. Just cannot cut it. In verse 11, Paul reiterates the fact that these events from the Israelite desert wanderings are examples for us. Were written down to instruct the church. And this again stresses the continuity between the Old Testament saints and the church. But he also highlights in this verse a discontinuity. We see in verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That's the continuity. And here it goes, on whom the end of the ages has come. This last part, this shows the discontinuity, on whom the end of the ages has come. See, there is a discontinuity between God's people of the Old Testament and the church. And there's a very important difference. And the coming of Christ is the key difference. The coming of Christ is the decisive event that changes everything. The Old Testament saints had promises that looked forward to fulfillment. They had types. They had shadows. But my friends, the church has the fulfillment. We have the substance of those types and shadows. The church has the fulfillment of those promises. And it's only by looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament that we can understand the significance of these Old Testament events. And all those promises and events in the Old Testament, they were looking forward. They were looking forward to Christ, looking forward to the incarnation. That was their next event on the the, the timeline, biblical timeline. But now, now this side of the cross, now we are in the last days, as verse 11 says, 
the end of the ages has come. Me and my friends, we are in the last days. That is the time period that we are in now. Even though it's been 2,000 years, this is the last phase of redemptive history. After this, it's game over. The next event on the prophetic timeline is Christ's return. It's the new heavens and the new earth. And this is interesting, and this is encouraging. I, I love that. I wish Jesus would come back even before I finish preaching. <clears throat> no, I'm not going to preach until Jesus comes back, but I, I wish he would come back before I would preach. But there's a particular reason this is important in the context of this passage. And the reason is that we in the church age, we have been given so much more revelation than ancient Israel. We have been given so much more. We have a privileged position. And the result of this privileged position is we have a greater responsibility. For for us, there is a greater consequence to our unbelief. As scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. And we have been given much. Those of us in the visible church, we have we have the Word of God. Just think about that. We have hundreds of Bibles in this, in this church. I have, I have about 30 Bibles at home. Just on our phones, we can get uh, multiple copies of, of God's Word. We, we have, um, and just think about this. Think about just church history. How few of people actually had the Word of God. Really, how many people actually understood the Word of God? Think of all the believers who were put to death for trying to translate this into the language of the people. That was the crime for translating. It was death, death on a stake, burnt alive. And we, as Americans, we have virtually unlimited access to the word of God. And it sits on our shelves, gathering deaths, never to be opened. And not only do we have unlimited access to the word of God, we have all kinds of resources to help us understand the word of God. Just on my phone, I can get the original languages. I can get uh, lectionaries, grammars to understand what it's saying. I can get hundreds of versions of, of the Bible, countless commentaries on every verse of the Bible, systematic theologies, not the least of which is our Westminster Confession, that give us a, a comprehensive framework for understanding the overall message of Scripture and how each of the pieces fit together. And we have the church. We have the church, we have the research, the church to guide us, to teach us, to pray for us. We have access to, to great teaching all over the world and throughout history. I've listened to, Char, to Charles Spurgeon sermons. Now, he wasn't actually preaching, it was someone reading his sermon, but I could have access to the greatest preaching of all time. And with all these resources, if we still refuse to believe, how much greater will our judgment be compared to those that we just read about in, in Israel, in the wilderness, who had so much less light than us? And Paul ends this warning section in verse 12 with really a warning for us not to dismiss the warning. It's a warning for us not to be arrogant and assume that these warnings don't have anything to us. There's the other people. I'm okay. It's not applicable to me individually. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And we've talked about this verse a lot last week, so I'm not going to go into much detail. But really what it is, is every single one of us must be on guard. Every one of us must be vigilant and, and soberly evaluate our own faithfulness in light of these warnings. This is our second point. This is the warning for all God's people. And if I stopped here, there would be a lot of anxiety. There would be anxiety among true believers. There would be confusion and, and despair among those who realize that they are only cultural Christians. And they presumed uh, it, was, it was insufficient to have this right relationship with God. But thankfully, we don't stop there. 
Our third and final point is the hope. The hope that we have as all as Christians. And we see this in the last verse, in verse 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And this is a great standalone verse. I'm sure many of you have heard this verse. And I actually figure I'm going to preach on this whole verse next week. So there's a lot of there's a lot of applications beyond what it is in the context of this. So I'm going to spend the whole next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at just this one verse. And that will help keep it short since we're going to have the Lord's Supper next Sunday too. And always preaching on one verse does help me keep the sermons a little shorter. But the application here for this verse, the context of this verse, is really the, 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 the presumption of the cultural Christian. In this verse, we see power. In this verse, we see hope. Because if we look at the temptations to idolatry, if we look at the, the temptations to unbelief, we'll see that they are many. So many that we conclude that really it, it's futile to even try to resist. We, we, we conclude that it's a, a losing battle, that it's useless to even struggle with these temptations. And if we're honest, we know that we do not have in us what we need to resist these struggles. And that's why this verse is so hopeful, because it doesn't look to us. It doesn't look to us for security. The solution is not in us. It's not in what we do. The only hope is outside ourselves. And the verse looks outside ourselves. And this verse starts by reminding us that this temptation we face, it's not unique. It's not unique at all. It's common to man. In fact, it's common to every man and every woman and every child and every single person. But just because it's common does not mean it's easy. Now, death is also common, right? But death is not easy. In fact, in and of ourselves, death is the one foe that we can never beat. It has conquered all that went before us, save one. And if the Lord tarries, it will overtake every single one of us in this room. But praise God, praise God that this verse does not end here. If it was, there would be no hope. There would only be despair. And it's in the next three words where we find hope. We find hope in our desperate situation. The next three words. God is faithful. God is faithful. That's our hope. God is faithful. That's our hope in this miserable condition. There is hope in God. There is hope in that God is faithful. And he's not only faithful, God is also able. And this means that he is faithful to help us and he is capable of helping us. And how does he help us? The verse goes on to tell us, God will provide the way of escape. And what is the way of escape? My friends, the way of escape is the gospel. The way of escape is the cross. The way of escape is Jesus Christ himself. It is his sacrificial death on the cross where every last sin has been, every last sin of every last of his elect has been fully and finally and forever punished and atoned for in Christ. Never, ever, ever to be held against his people. And Christ's perfect merit, Christ's perfect righteousness is given to us, his people, so that God's holy standard of perfection is met, not in us, but in Christ. This is our hope, my friends. This is our only hope. And if there are any, if there are any here who have never accepted the offer of this free gift, any who are watching on the live stream who have never offered this, your only, your only application is to come to the gospel. The only application of the sermon and all my sermons is to come to Christ now. Repent of any futile attempts to justify yourself and fall upon his grace. Scripture promises all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're a believer, 
Remember the reality of who you are in Christ. Remember whose you are. You have been bought with a price. You are a new creation in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This, my friends, is your identity. And you have not only been freed from the penalty of sin, as great as that is, you have also been freed from the power of sin in Christ. And your application is simple. Trust in this power. Your application is to live in this power. And by this, may we all put to death the presumption of the cultural Christian. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for you. We pray, Lord, that you will allow us to understand the reality, the, re- the, re- un- the reality of who you are and who we are in Christ, that we will trust in that reality and we will trust in that power and we will act according to that power. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.